HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone, and welcome to the first episode of our new season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food, Law, and Policy at UCLA Law School, and I am thrilled to be back here in the studio broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. And with this first episode, we are talking about a fitting topic for this back-to-school time of year, school lunch, and the major federal legislation that funds our national lunch program, the Child Nutrition Bill, which is reauthorized by Congress every five years. The current version of this legislation, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, was passed in 2010 amid First Lady Michelle Obama's push for stronger nutrition standards, and it seems to have been in the news pretty much ever since that, with both vigorous praise and intense criticism for the stronger standards that followed the bill. Those standards included requirements for more whole grains and fruits and vegetables, lower sodium targets, and it's been somewhat controversial, the implementation of it. The bill is set to expire on September 30th, and while everyone can agree about the importance of the law and the healthy school meals for all of our kids, when you get into the details, there's been what some see as a surprising amount of controversy. So what we're going to do is get into some of those details today with four experts who've really been at the forefront of the school meals policy discussion and the implementation of the new standards, and I'm pleased to welcome them all today. I have joining me Dr. Margo Wutan, the Director of Nutrition Policy with the Center for Science and the Public Interest, Doug Davis, the Director of Food Service for the Burlington School Food Project in Burlington, Vermont, and also the Chair of the School Nutrition Association's Public Policy and Legislation Committee, Kathy Lawrence, who's the Director of Strategic Development for School Food Focus, an organization that works in partnership with school districts to increase purchasing of healthy and sustainable foods. And finally, Eric Goldstein, the CEO of the Office of School Support Services for New York City, who in this capacity oversees school food for the city of New York. And he's also the chairman of the Urban School Food Alliance, which is a food purchasing collaboration 
between New York City, L.A., Chicago, Miami, Dallas, and Orlando. Thank you and welcome to all of you. Everyone's, everyone's on the you. line? Great. So we have four folks calling in from all over the country, and uh, really glad you all can be here. I want to first, in the interest of disclosure, just say that in my previous position as the food policy coordinator for New York City under the Bloomberg administration, I did work with Eric and was involved in school food issues. And now turning to today's discussion, Margo, I'd like to first start with you. You've been involved in advocacy on behalf of the 2010 Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act. And you have been a champion of the strength, strength and nutrition standards that USDA issued following the act. Can you just start us off by telling us what the scope and scale of the legislation is and its impact for the nation's kids? Every five years, Congress has to take a look at the child nutrition programs. There are specific ones that actually have to be reauthorized. But while they're doing that, they tend to look at everything. So school lunch, school breakfast, the WIC program, which is for women and children and a range of other programs. The reauthorization that took place in 2010 was really historic. There was a very comprehensive look, especially at school lunch and school breakfast, and a number of things have come out of it. Stronger nutrition standards for school lunch and school breakfast, which means more fruits and vegetables and whole grains, getting rid of trans fat and reducing sodium in school meals, and also it addressed the food that is sold outside of the cafeteria around campus. So there are nutrition standards for school lunch, but then there was all the other food that's sold in vending machines, in, um, in school stores, in fundraisers that are on campus during the school day. And so USDA has also updated the standards for that, getting rid of the soda and candy. So school nutrition has improved more in the last three years as this law has been implemented, and I would say over the last 20 or 30 years. There really has been remarkable progress. Schools are working very hard to serve not only healthier food, but more appealing, good-tasting food that appeals to kids. So, Margo, I want to first ask you just to try and talk right into your phone. I want to make sure that our audience can hear you, um, and you're just going out very little bit there. Um, then I want to talk turn to now just some of, if you can help identify, what are some of the big issues that are really on the table, particularly with regard to the, to the lunch program specifically, as we head into the reauthorization discussion? Probably the biggest issue is to try to prevent some of the efforts that are underway to stop the progress that's been happening, to roll back some of the nutrition standards. So some have been pushing to weaken the standards, go back to where we were, and allow more unhealthy food in school. So not to have to have as many fruits and vegetables or have the kids take them, to weaken the standards around sodium and whole grains in particular. So I want to uh, now turn to Doug Davis. Doug, you, um, as the policy director for the committee, for the P Committee on Public Policy and Legislation for School Nutrition Association, you're familiar with some of the priorities that your organization has, and you sent a letter earlier this week to congressional leaders talking about 
some of those goals that Margot just referenced. And two of those points have been one, one in particular is to seek more funding for the legislation, but secondly, more flexibility or what Margot referred to as the rollback and the implementation of the nutrition standards. And in particular, the reduction in the amount of whole grains that schools must offer and to also allow students to decline to take a fruit or vegetable with their meal as opposed to having to take a fruit or vegetable with their meal, a fruit or vegetable serving. So can you tell us what's driving your membership to push for those priorities? Yeah, I will. And Kim, I thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. The <clears throat> I know that when you talk to Margot, you, you would ask that it, we focus on lunch, but the the meal pattern does include breakfast as well. And one of the challenges that we're seeing on the fruit and vegetable regulation is that breakfast is now included as requiring um, fresh fruit and vegetable to be on that tray. And one of the challenges around making sure that the breakfast tray includes fruit is that the cost of that product is, you know, between 20 and 30 cents in many cases, and it's not a funding, uh, it's not a reimbursement that we're receiving. Also, the School Nutrition Association, many of um, our allies and colleagues have recognized that breakfast is so vitally important for our kids, and it's been placed in the classroom. In some cases, it's been placed out in the hallways, and it's really challenging for schools to implement the uh, mandate of fruit or vegetable being on that tray at breakfast time. Well, what um, about at, at just what about at lunch specifically? Okay, though, so at lunch, the challenges are that we have where we're grateful for the regulations, the way that the spirit came out, that we need to offer a uh, a lot of different fruits and vegetables, a lot of different vegetable components and vegetable subgroups. The challenge lies in getting the kids to take it if indeed they don't wish to. And in some cases, we're finding that children are really pushing back on that. And we're finding that in some cases, we're seeing our our waste increase. We're certainly seeing the cost of our tray increase because previous to the regulations coming out, we were um, able to allow a child to choose or not choose. Now, speaking from Vermont, where our students do lead the nation based on the Youth Risk Behavior Survey in vegetable and fruit consumption, we still have trouble getting children to choose it, even though it is part of their culture to want to. And as far as the whole grain, um, we have some challenges around, again, the cost and availability of some of these items in their whole grain form. We also have many children um, who are new Americans. We have a lot of um, cultural preferences that we're having a difficult time meeting um, and still maintaining that whole grain rich requirement. And the term rollback is something that I'd really like to address. We're really not looking to roll back or gut any of these regulations. What we're trying to do is give schools the flexibility they need to create and provide meals to our kids while still maintaining a solvent program. Um, many of our programs are finding financial difficulty in implementing these regulations. Okay, well, I want to come back to... I'll just clarify is that, you know, flexibility is really Washington speak for rollback, that... Flexibility sounds nice, and that's the way they've been trying to sell this. But they're not talking about flexibility. They're talking about rolling back whole grain standards from 100% to 50%, rolling back sodium from, you know, preventing the next level of sodium reduction to go down. Those are not flexibilities. Those are weakening nutrition for children. So I want to come back. I would have to back. disagree, though, if I might, because it's, it, it, I know that it's easy to say that we're, 
looking at the term flexibility and trying to roll it back. But having had the privilege of being in schools, feeding kids for 25 years, it really is a challenge to meet these criteria and meet these regulations and still be able to report back to our boards with a budget that meets. Many of our schools are challenged by the cost of the regulation. By USDA's own estimate, um, schools are $1.2 billion short in reimbursement than the cost of implementation. I don't think anybody is saying that we wish to give kids less healthy food. As a matter of fact, I would say that child nutrition professionals are the best people on the planet to be providing food to the kids that need it the most. We simply have to then report to our business managers and school boards in a way that shows that our program is solvent. So I want to especially come back to that cost issue, but before doing that, I'd love to hear from you, Doug, and maybe Kathy or Eric, if you have perspective on this, but I think sometimes in this crosstalk, people don't have a clear picture of what this the implementation of the standards actually looks like. So on the whole grains question, Doug, can you give us an example? You talked about how hard it is to meet the new standards. What are the kinds of products that you want to serve that you're having trouble sourcing are, or what are the types of products that you'd like to serve that would no longer be compliant? So we have um, Burlington, Vermont, is a refugee resettlement center. So speaking just for my school first, um, we have um, a lot of children who culturally would prefer a a white rice and beans or white tortillas. I mean, I'm really thinking that schools in general are not needing to get a – um, you know, a, a, a restart on this whole grain. Most all of the products that schools are serving right now are whole grain rich. Um, I have no problems when we're having to convert to a whole grain pizza or a whole grain burger roll or a whole grain bread. We are talking about whole grain, things that are just not common for kids, um, at least in the Northeast and in <clears throat> in New England, like um, pastas and bagels and, um, and tortillas. I hear from my colleagues um, around the country country, um, the, the, the problems they're having sourcing or getting acceptability on biscuits or um, bagels or, or those sorts of things. Um, and in terms of the cost of those items, whole grain items tend to be between 25 and 50 percent more expensive, and it tends to be difficult to source them um, most of, well, not not most of the time, but on occasion, it is harder to source those items. So I want to hear, um, I'd love to bring Eric and Kathy in on this question around what Doug just referenced, this issue of familiarity and what kids really want and what, what you would say the role of schools are in uh, creating a culture of health. So we know that um, we know that we have underconsumption nationally of whole grains and fruits and vegetables and our dietary patterns don't actually equal up to what the nation's goals are for that what what's the role of food should what's the role of school in that landscape where um, some of the nutrition standards may be ahead of where the culture is eric do you want to speak to that yeah look i i think it's this is a very very important debate and the debate clearly uh ripples out beyond what happens just in schools and, and very clearly touches on the larger food debate that we're undergoing uh, in this country at the same time, which is one hand an anti-hunger debate, the second is a pro-nutrition debate. Uh, there are aspects of, um, of course, politics because it's federal funding and the, the source of all this uh, legislation comes out of Washington, so the whole politics relating to, uh, to food and just politics in general permeate this whole debate. But schools, from a school perspective here in New York City, it plays an integral role. I think culturally there needs to be a very clear shift. If you look at food, lunch, and breakfast historically, 
you can also put physical education into this equation, but we'll put that to the side for a second. They have been viewed as tangential uh, sort of events to the school day. Their lunch is separate. You know, if you look at a cafeteria across America, it's kind of confusing to see what it is. Generally speaking, there aren't teachers present. There are school aides present. The job of the school aides just to ensure that nothing uh, tragic happens in the cafeteria. Is it about recreation? Is it about eating? Is it about what? It's sort of, we never really thought this through. It's a bit confused. But if you really start to think about it, and hopefully there'll be a cultural shift where we can move the sort of the our, our feeding times, whether it's lunch or breakfast, to be not tangential, but to be rather an integral part of the school day. Uh, breakfast in the classroom, I think, is, is moving in that direction, and we're very supportive of that in New York. We're going to be rolling out a big effort here, which we're very excited about. I mean, that's a whole different eating environment where you have a smaller eating environment. It's more intimate. There's a teacher present. It changes the whole dynamic of, of food. And, of course, as we know, it's food is much more than just the amalgamation of the ingredients on the plate although that's clearly key, uh, key stuff and just crucial. Um, but, you know, if you really think about it, and the way we start to think about it here in New York is that really lunch period and breakfast is really two very important health classes that the kids should have every day. And we need to start thinking very differently about how we approach both lunch and breakfast as part of the school day. So, uh, Eric, course, is, there, a- is there actually part of your uh, advocacy as the, if on behalf of the alliance, is there something that you're advocating for that you think would help move the legislation in support of those goals? Yeah, well, the alliance. What we're very focused on are the ingredients. Look, we spend an average of between a dollar twenty and a dollar twenty-five on lunch. If you look at private schools across the alliance districts, they spend sometimes in the neighborhood of upwards of three dollars. There's a there's a real inequity there that needs to be addressed, uh, and there is not enough money in the school food program. There needs to be more money. And I think, certainly from our point of view, to get healthier food, you do need to spend some more money. I think there's been a big gap in how to do that. We very clearly advocate for an increase in the commodity dollar allocation. The commodity dollar allocation is money that can only be spent on food. This is generally money that is spent uh, with American companies that employ American workers on food that's, uh, you know, spent feeding American children. Uh, and it's, it's very, very important stuff. And really, that's how you're going to change, I think, the game uh, in the school food environment by increasing the commodity dollar allocation and just spending more money on food. So let me come back to that funding question. So I know that that's a priority for you, the commodity dollar allocation, and, and that SNA, one of their priorities is a higher reimbursement uh, amount, $0.35 cent increase in the reimbursement amount. And just for everyone's frame of reference, in 2010, the reimbursement increase was $0.06 cents just for the lunch meal. So 35% would be, um, or $0.35 cents would be a more significant increase. And yet, um, I think that some of the cost issues around implementation are things that also have predated the increased standards and that it may be a legacy of longtime underfunding of uh, school the school meals program. And that co- the cost hasn't actually been as much discussed, at least in the national media discussion around what needs to be done for the school lunch program. And so I'm interested to hear from you all what needs to be done to get more bipartisan support or recognition of that cost issue. And is there something that, tactically speaking, SNA could be doing to put that issue more in the forefront? Um, <clears throat> I think that SNA has been talking about funding for for, you know, for a very long time, it has been. Um, it was a major issue on our paper this year. Um, going back to what Eric said, um, in the recent past, um, SNA has asked for um, commodity 
um, entitlement increases. Um, right now, breakfast is not receiving any commodity funding at all, and we felt that with the new regulations impacting the cost of breakfast substantially, that it seemed to be it seemed to make sense that we would get some funding through the commodity breakfast program or commodity foods for breakfast. Um, that's a challenge. Um, one of the things that is is kind of difficult is that the commodity entitlement is negotiated in the in the farm bill and the lunch reimbursement, breakfast reimbursement is in the child nutrition reauthorization. So that in of itself makes it a little confusing. Um, in terms of, of of reimbursement, I think part of it is that we just need to recognize what the real cost of the program really is. And when schools are asked to um, provide these meals for kids, we don't want um, the program to become only serving low-income and poor families. We want everybody to access our program just like they access every program within the school now. So if we don't figure out a way to better reimburse all aspects of our, our meal program, whether the family is eligible for free lunches or not, we're going to be facing an issue where only the poorest of our community are going to get in line, and it really is going to be um, a, a throwback, if you will, to the time when you know there were so many stigmas around participating in the meal program. That's why I feel so strongly about SNA's ask to increase the reimbursement rate by 35 cents per meal because it talks to both what you just said, Kim, that we've been underfunded for so long, but also recognizes the fact that in order to provide the healthier, whole, and fresh foods that, that we're all wanting to put on our kids' trays, it gives us a fighting chance to be able to afford it. And why not? We have to figure out, though, is why some schools are struggling more with the finances than others, because we know that there are a large number of schools that are meeting the updated school nutrition standards at the current reimbursement rate, and there are others that aren't able to. And we need to figure out, is it big schools versus small schools? Is it the cost of living in those areas? Is it rural schools? And so to figure out why some schools are struggling more than others and to solve the problem in a constructive way rather than trying to solve the problem by serving children less healthy. So we're yeah, going to take we're a quick break, trying to serve children Doug. less healthy food. I feel that what you've just touched upon is that it is not a one-size-fits-all model. So just in describing what happens in New England, where our school districts are so, so small in comparison to an average school district in our country's 13,000, Burlington, Vermont is the largest in Vermont. We're only 4,000. Yet in our small state, um, up until we began to consolidate school districts a couple of years ago, there were 295 school food authorities. So the, the problem lies in that every school district operates their program in a different way, yet every school food authority has to conform to the regulations in the same way. Not one size fits all. It's a meal pattern, and every school district gets to choose which foods they serve within that pattern. But this is a national program. Almost all the money for school lunch comes from the federal government that, you know, less than 10% of the funds going to school lunch come from states and localities. And so if we're going to put $15 billion into the National School Lunch and Breakfast Program, we need to make sure that that money is well spent. You know, national standards for a national program is just good government. And we're going to come back and talk more about some of the differences between schools. We're just going to take a quick break and get more into that issue.
still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org, click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, um, turning, coming back to the discussion that we just left off with on how the new standards are being implemented across the country. Kathy, I'd love to turn to you. You have experience working with lots of different schools, and I'd like to hear from you what you've seen uh, from the schools and, and where some are having more success with implementation of the standards. Some we know have been focusing on shifts to healthier foods for many years, and others may have less groundwork laid prior to the new regulations. Do you think that that's a factor with regard to each school system's success? I think that's definitely a factor. Uh, We work currently with 43 large districts across the country, and so we see a variety of challenges with improving school food, whether it's tight budgets or outdated kitchen equipment or no kitchen facilities available at all, or whether it has to do with accessing more wholesome foods. But there is no doubt that the districts and the school food service directors that we're working with are incredibly dedicated to continually improving the foods that they are able to serve their kids. Um, I do think that there hasn't been enough focus on the fact that the 2010 Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act not only raised the standards, and we've talked a little bit about fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains, but it really began a shift from sort of a very nutrient-based analysis of school food to a much more whole foods-based understanding. Uh, And I think that that is a critical piece to be looking at, both in terms of the federal legislation, but also in terms of the procurement power that school districts can wield in shaping their local, regional, and national food systems with whatever dollars they have. And so what we're looking at with the large districts that we're working with is how do you leverage the procurement power they've already got uh, to come up with unified demand, unified specifications for higher and higher quality foods, and then send that unified message to industry to be able to start reshaping food systems in the direction of both public health and environmental health and beginning to see some real progress in that um, with that approach. So, Kathy, just following up on that, I know, you know, a lot of the conversation about the child nutrition 
bill is really dominated on the issues of public health and and anti-hunger concerns, it seems feels sometimes like some of the things you were just talking about, agriculture and and moves towards sustainable production are more left out, even though farm to school has also been a big part of um, has made major gains in recent years in in CNR. But I would like to hear from you about some of those successes you have had and in particular the move away from um, chickens, a chicken that uses, that's uh, treated with antibiotics, and what the role of procurement is versus compared to, say, legislation and regulation that we've been talking about today in in changing school food? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say both market-based change and legislative change and administrative change, those are all key components in improving school food. Um, and what we've been looking at is the market-based change that districts can create by coming together and identifying key areas of concern. And so the key public health issue of antibiotic resistance is something that's been on the radar screen for the school food service directors that we've been working with since 2008, 2009, trying to figure out how to get better chicken into the schools because that is the number one protein served across the country in all school districts uh, across the board. And so we've helped districts to source where it's available, regional, no antibiotic ever, very high quality chicken. And the fact is that even now that supply is both limited and can be quite expensive uh, if you're looking at the kinds of chicken products that districts are getting across the board. So what we've worked on is let's look at the conventional poultry production system and figure out how we can create a standard for responsible antibiotic use that doesn't misuse medically important antibiotics. We work with a few charitable trusts. We work with 15 districts across the country very intensively created a standard, worked with USDA to get that third party verified so that those school food service directors have confidence that the products that are labeled certified responsible antibiotic use actually are and have managed to get two of the top four poultry um, companies in the country to adopt that standard. Tyson and Purdue have both done that as well as working with mid-sized companies. So... So that's in this school year, fifteen sixteen, there are districts across the country that are able to buy both certified responsible antibiotic use chicken and no antibiotic ever chicken, and that's a direct result of the leadership that those school food service directors have employed in the food system. And that also does speak to the role how important big business is or major corporations can mm-hmm. be in school food. And I'm interested to hear, Margo, if you have a take on what the role of the food industry has been in lobbying, because again, school food really is big business. The New York Times last year reported that schools purchase, for example, more than $450 million worth of pizza every year. Have they been active in this discussion and what's their role been? Do you want to weigh in on that, Margo? Sure. Schools are buying a lot of food, you know, about $15 billion worth of, um, $15 billion is invested in the school lunch program just from the federal government, and then there's also the money that families spend and a little bit of money that states and localities put in. And probably just as importantly, schools help to shape children's food preferences along with many other factors, but it is a place where kids do a lot of their eating. And so, Companies have lobbied very hard, and for healthy, hunger-free kids, we 
we were able to work cooperatively with Coke and Pepsi, Mars, Nestle, and other companies to pass the bill and to get USDA to move forward, allow them to move forward in setting stronger standards for vending machines and a la carte lines in the cafeteria. And it was terrific to see public health and food companies come together in support of healthier nutrition for kids. I think more recently we've seen some companies pushing back, you know, with concerns about pizza and, you know, fighting to keep pizza so that it can be counted as a vegetable in the school lunch program. That was a fight that they won in Congress. They also have been pushing back on sodium and whole grains. But I think it's not all companies. You know, there are some that are pushing back, especially through their membership in the School Nutrition Association, where the companies are very powerful. It's not just the food service directors, but the school food industry that is um, represented by the School Nutrition Association. But I think also um, many companies are working hard to reformulate their products, and we're seeing more whole grain products, companies reducing sodium. And so the, the regulations not only shape what food service does and the way they make their food, but it shapes the whole food supply, the whole food system, the way Kathy is talking about, to make these products available to schools around the country and then also to restaurants and other food outlets, makes whole grains more available to the whole country. Kim, may I weigh in on that? Yeah, I was going to give you a chance to do that, and then we're going to just do one last question before we wrap up, but go ahead, Doug. Okay, real quickly. Um... You know, I think that the whole pizza as a vegetable thing really should be discussed because I've been, as I've said, doing this for a very long time, and I know hundreds and hundreds of food service directors around the country, and none of them would stand up and say they're using pizza as a vegetable. Um, So that's one thing I would like to share. And also, you know, going back to what Kathy said about the vegetables and the the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act allowing for new products, whole, fresh products to be put on is very, very valuable. I think when we look at it as a whole tray like we need to do, um, we are now looking at a little bit more money than Eric mentioned in New York. Um, we probably have about a dollar thirty-five or forty that it costs us to put our tray out. Um, but what we're finding is we're relying more on our industry partners to create that center of the plate, so that we can then make our our vegetables and our fruits and our whole grains more inviting to our kids. So it isn't so much to me that the um, industry is is part of this problem. I really feel that industry is helping child nutrition programs to meet these new regulations because in a, in a in a typical school, at least here in the Northeast, not maybe speaking about New York or Boston or some of the larger cities, but in our rural areas, it really is challenging for us to make sure that we can reformulate our own recipes and programs to or um, recipes and items to meet these new sodium guidelines. So sometimes when pro, when products get reformulated, it does meet the new requirement, but it causes that ingredient label to grow. And sometimes my parents push back on that as well because we're looking for items that you know maybe have five or six ingredients on our center of the plate. And some of these things, um, though they meet the guidelines and my kids are enjoying them, it is sometimes going to make that. Um, 
that label grow, and it is a challenge when they have to reformulate to meet the sodium requirement. So what I want to do now uh, as a wrap-up is just go hear from each of you on actually two different questions, sort of um, rapid-fire style, and we'll go um, from Eric to Kathy to Doug to Margot. And the first question is, if try and keep it just to one sentence, if there's one thing that you think the media, parents, or the general public has the wrong perception of with school food, what is it? What would you want to correct? So starting with you, Eric. I would say the, the wrong perception the public has is that the food isn't good. I mean, there are many sensational examples put out of food that doesn't look good, but uh, school food is not uniform across the country. Certain districts, uh, uh, unfortunately, do it better than others, uh, but uh, I'd say on balance, school food is good, and it's not the school food that they went they experienced when they were in school. Kathy? I agree 100% with Eric, and I would say that the media does not ever capture the full complexity of this nationally funded, state-administered, locally implemented, highly regulated, underfunded system. And the school food service directors that we're working with and school food service directors across the country really do care and are working hard to make better and better food available to their students. Doug. Um, I would, first of all, agree with what's been said, but also to share that I think groups on both sides of this issue really agree on substantially more than we disagree on. There are so many changes that have been implemented um, in the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, and all for the better, and I, 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 I am grateful for the First Lady taking this on as her pet project because it really has shined a very important light on the importance of food access and food security. But I really feel that the people who are, are tending to be placed in the ring together as, as being in battle should really recognize that we're agreeing on substantially more than we're disagreeing. Marco. I would agree that things are so much better than what most parents think. That um, I would encourage parents to go eat lunch at their child's school or visit during lunchtime and see what the school is serving and thank the food service director for the hard work that they're doing because food service directors really have one of the hardest jobs in the country. You think about how hard it is to feed a couple of kids healthfully and get them to eat it. You know, this is not an easy job. And so thank them for the work they're doing. And for those schools that are struggling, if your kid's school is not serving as healthy and appealing a meal as they could be, to help get them the support, the technical assistance, the training that they need. And maybe that goes to my last question. First, I have to just say, as a parent who's done that, I second that. It was a great thing to visit your school during lunchtime. Um, second. Last question, just really, what would you want to say to parents that they can either do or how they can get involved in this issue if they want to? And maybe we'll go the other way around. So, Margo, maybe you just said that, but anything to add? Well, yes. At the local level, I'd visit your school and see what's happening. But this is the time that the school lunch programs are being looked at, and Congress is reauthorizing child nutrition. So I would get in touch with your member of Congress, with your representative and your two senators, and let them know that you want them to protect the progress that schools are making and to continue on the path toward healthier food for kids. And that includes whole grains and sodium and fruits and vegetables. Doug? I would say that, you know, parents need to realize that, and having been a school board member myself, I'll share that parents need to recognize that school board doesn't always recognize how important the child nutrition program is, and they honestly don't always understand how it is funded. So I would say to go to your school, have lunch, see what kids are eating, 
see what the facilities are like, but recognize that your school board is expecting your school meal program to break even, and those school boards are really perfectly willing to invest in programs like athletics and drama. They often look at school nutrition programs as needing to be bailed out when their costs exceed revenue. And I think that if we can just change the way we recognize school lunch and recognize that the cafeteria needs to be seen as the largest classroom in the school as opposed to a place, like Eric said, where kids just kind of get dropped off to eat. Kathy? I would encourage parents to really think very carefully about their role as citizens in a democracy that only changes when you've got um, action at the grassroots level and encourage parents to really engage in this once every five years critical debate on whether we as a nation are going to invest in our children's health through school meals programs and whether we as a nation are going to invest in continually better food and more healthful food systems to support those kids and the rest of the community that they live in. And Eric? I would say if the parents, you know, care about uh, food, they care about their children's health, or frankly, if they work in the food industry, they should lobby their members of Congress to support more money for the child nutrition reauthorization. Great. So we're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you so much um, for sharing your perspectives with us today. To Doug Davis, Kathy Lawrence, Eric Goldstein, and Margot Wutan, really appreciate you joining us. That brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. Our show co-producer is Jenna Liute, and our intern is Austin Brunyarski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter, leave us a review or tweet at us. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.